You know, I got to thinking this past week as I was thinking about this Sunday and what this message could mean, you know, even for the next few weeks, which I'll talk to you about in a little bit, um, that in many ways, we're all pretty ordinary people. You know, and, and we all have a secret or, or maybe a bunch of secrets, but even in our ordinariness, if you will, you know, one of the carefully concealed secrets that every single one of us carries around is this desire to stand out from the crowd in some way. I mean, I think if we're really honest with ourselves, even if we you know, don't have a high self-esteem or there's nothing really extraordinary about us, the deep within every one of us is this desire to stand out you know, beyond the crowd, to be extraordinary in just one thing. Uh, take America's Got Talent, for example. Any America's Got Talent fans uh, in the house? Good. I'm glad to see there are only a few because it's a brutal show, in my opinion. And it seems like it's on every single night, you know. Just give me something different. But if you like America's Got Talent, no problem. But, you know, a classic case of, you know, a classic example of thousands of people that will do anything, you know, just for a moment of attention or just for a little bit of, uh, you know, of the, of the spotlight in their life. You know, we want to be extraordinary at something, you know, even just one thing. What, what is it for you? And, you know, maybe it's an easy answer for you. Maybe you, you have to do some uh, thinking back to those days when you were a kid and what were the, some of those things that you dreamt about, maybe what you would be when you, you grew up. Or if you could, if you could set everything aside and, and take one job or live in one place or have so much money, you know, what, what's the one thing you would do? How, how, in what area of your life would you really like to be extraordinary? I mean, maybe, maybe for you there's just this deep-kept secret that you'd love to be an actor. You know, and you'd love to, to be in a movie and just to be able to, you know, use your gifts and, you know, to have everyone look at you. Or, or maybe it's to be a successful entrepreneur. And, and not only do you want to own your own business, but it's so much deeper than that. I mean, you, you want people to look to you and to look to your success for advice and, you know, how, how can I do this? And, and to be used as a classic example of someone who's on this course uh, for success. Or maybe it's to be a standout athlete. You know, and, and you're like me, and with the start of college football season and watching these guys run out on the field, you're thinking, you know, what if, what if I could do that? And, and that's my story. You know, in, in the ordinariness of who I am, I'm this kid at heart, this diehard athlete at heart who's never accomplished anything when it comes to sports. But when I, when I watch a game, when I go to a game, and I watch those guys go running out on the field, there's so much of me that wants to be in that moment with them, you know, to be able to run out on the court with that uniform and to hear the crowd. And, and it's not even so much about the crowd or even the money that you can make. It's just that joy of doing something that you love to do and the competition and, and the drive for success. Well, so what has it done for me? Or, or where have I gotten with it? Well, I think this sums it all up of where I've come to. Uh, this is uh, my mesh jersey uh, for the White River Christian Church Basketball League. Uh, this, this is the extent of how far my dreams have come. Yes, thank you. Thank you for a little bit of applause there. Uh, number 33. And my dream is that one day this might hang from the banners of this church, you know, you know that that number 33 will be retired in some way. But, uh, you know, so I play with a group of guys from this church. We played last winter in, in this church basketball league, and I'm not going to lie. I love to do it, you know, and I, I'm not going to lie, and I, I'd almost be a little embarrassed to say this, but if you could get inside of my mind come game day, 
you know, I go to a different place, you know. And on, on game day afternoon, on Sunday afternoons, you know, during basketball league, and I go home, and it's time to put on the jersey, I mean, my upstairs bedroom kind of becomes my locker room, you know. And I put my jersey on, and I'm ready to go, and it's like I'm walking out the tunnel, you know, walking out of the locker room tunnel when I head out the door of my house. And I walk down the stairs, and, and I'm proud to say that there's my three-year-old boy, Luke, and my six-year-old, Joel, and they're kind of looking up to me and looking at their daddy like, Daddy, you go get them. You know, and you score, and you take it to the hole, and you bring home a win, and they look at me with this great admiration and this great awe, and I got this look in my eyes that I've just put on a jersey, but it's more than just a shirt, you know. It's about putting on some pride, you know, for my team. My wife, on the other hand, gives me kind of this look that communicates, don't get hurt, and on your way home, would you please pick up a gallon of milk, all right? I mean, that, that's the support that I get. And so, you know, I march off, and, and I play this game, and, and, and the, the tough reality of it all is that I'm just pretty ordinary, you know? And, and I've got these dreams that, you know, I could be so much more or whatever, but the reality is that, that I'm pretty ordinary. And, and it's hard, you know, no one wants to settle, you know, for just being ordinary or an ordinary uh, person. And I think if we're honest with ourselves... You know, most of, in this, of us in this room would probably say we're pretty ordinary. You know, we live ordinary lives and we're normal and average. And at least I'm not, I hope I'm not the only one that think this, he thinks this. But, but here's the great truth. God does some of his greatest work in ordinary people. I mean, that's, that's the God we serve. Now, that's what our, the Bible communicates to us. If, if you've got your Bibles, turn to the book of Acts. Uh, go to the New Testament and go about halfway into the New Testament to the book of Acts. The book of Acts is a history book. Uh, it is the Acts of the Apostles, the doings of the Apostles, the, the doings of the disciples, the early church. That's where it gets its name. And, and the book of Acts begins in Acts chapter 1 with Jesus' ascension into heaven to go back to heaven, and he's left the church behind. He's left his disciples behind. He's left all of these ordinary people behind to carry on the work that he started, uh, the work that he's given us to do. And so go to the book of Acts and go to Acts chapter 4. And it's in Acts chapter 4 that the word ordinary is used to describe Peter and John. Uh, If you're there, go to Acts chapter 4, verse 13. We've got it on the screens as well. It says, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men. Okay, just stop there for a moment, if you would. Let let me give you some background on what's actually taking place here in this text so that you can better understand what's going on in the larger scheme of things. The teachers of the law, the leaders of the temple, observed Peter and John teaching. They observed them teaching in public, and they watched them work this miracle And their conclusion, after watching them do this preaching and to work this miracle, was to say, hey, these are unschooled, ordinary men. And so we see these words here in Acts chapter 4, verse 13. Now, you can't really argue with the classification that these teachers of the law, these Pharisees, uh, these religious superiors passed on to Peter and John because it was pretty true. Uh, Peter was, was a fisherman, and as a fisherman... He's never been through any uh, form of specialized teaching or training, no formal education. Uh, Fishermen didn't sit at the top of the social status ladder in Israel, no AP classes in high school, never gone to seminary. I mean, fishing was a good fallback. I mean, you can't do anything else, we'll just go be a fisherman. And Peter was just a passionate guy 
who had a reputation for always putting his foot in his mouth. You know some people like that. Maybe you live with one. But he's a pretty ordinary guy. Well, John was the same way. When Jesus met John, John was pretty ordinary, and he was a fisherman working in the family business with his father and his brother, James, who was also a disciple. Now, John didn't have a degree. He didn't go to rabbinical school. He was a fisherman. In fact, James and John had this reputation that gave them this nickname, the Sons of Thunder, which had nothing to do with professional wrestling or anything like that. But apparently, these two, James and John, had a problem with their tempers, you know, and fishing will do that to you sometimes. I mean, if you get frustrated as a fisherman, it's easy to lose your temper. But Jesus gave these two guys the nickname, the Sons of Thunder. So James and John were called the Sons of Thunder. And so John, who we're talking about today, who we see here in Acts chapter 4 with Peter, he's a fisherman. And he's a fisherman with a short fuse. He's a pretty ordinary guy. Now, the teachers of the law recognized Peter and John were nothing more than ordinary guys. But as ordinary as they were, even these religious leaders were amazed to see the extraordinary work that these guys were doing. I mean, look at verse 13 one more time. It says, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled and ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note. Men with courage, you know, amazement amongst these high religious leaders at what they were capable of doing, so much that they took note. I mean, these ordinary men were filled with courage and the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit of God working inside of them and through them. And because of this, even as ordinary men, they were able to do extraordinary things. And as we look at this this morning and as we think about our own lives, I, I wonder if it could be true for you and me too. I mean, what would happen in our lives if we became more and more aware of the potential of the power of God working through us? Let me say that again. What would happen in our lives, what would happen in our church if you and I became more and more aware of the potential of the power of God working in us and through us. We're going to start talking about that today and next week as well and over the next month as we think more and more about the type of church that we want to be, the type of church that we believe that God is calling us to be. Now let me go back a little bit further, if I can, in the context of what's taking place here. Let me give you a closer look at how all of this came to be in Acts chapter 4. It's actually in Acts chapter 3, which precedes all of the developments that we see here in Acts 4. But it's in Acts 3 that Peter and John perform a great miracle. And they do it out in public where everyone is able to see. And there was this large crowd that gathered around the temple because of it. And then most of them came because Peter, who was a part of this great miracle, started preaching. He, he started preaching right on the spot as they healed this crippled man. And all of this, all of these developments lead up to Acts chapter 4. And again, that's where we pick it up. So if you're in Acts chapter 4, now back up and let's go to verse 1. And let me read from there. It says, The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees, which was a, a portion of the religious leaders group, kind of like we have Democrats and Republicans and independents. Well, there were Sadducees as a part of this religious leadership. Uh, but uh, anyway, so the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. And they were greatly disturbed 
because the apostles, now the apostles is kind of a fancier way of saying disciples. The apostles were the chosen men, the closest men to Jesus, and Peter and John were a part of the apostles, so they referred to them as the apostles, were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So they seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day, verse 4. But many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. Now that's phenomenal, okay? 5,000 people. I mean, 5,000 men came to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And note here that the author only takes account of the men. And if we figure in and factor in the children and the women that believed, it's possible that as many as 20,000 people have come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior in just a short amount of time, which probably is about 20% of the population in Jerusalem. That's a pretty good sermon, all right? That's a pretty good morning uh, for Peter. It's a great message. But there are a few things that I want you to see this morning, especially as we think about ordinariness. The first thing is that, and if you're taking notes, you can write this down, as ordinary as these men were, they had a lot of courage to talk about Jesus. I mean, as ordinary as these men were, they had some great courage to talk about Jesus. And that's pretty remarkable considering the Jewish leaders that are in the crowd because these are the same Jewish leaders that crucified Jesus. And these these are in the crowd as Peter and John are speaking, but it doesn't stop them. I mean, they're not phased. And look at verse 1 again it says that they came up to Peter and John. So it wasn't as if they were just in the back row. I mean, they came all the way up to Peter and John. Some say that it would be better translated, written, they came up to them suddenly. I mean, they weren't excited about the fact that Peter and John were preaching at their temple in their city of Jerusalem and preaching about this guy named Jesus. And so the tension really begins right here. And it begins to rise as Peter and John's adrenaline kick in. And you know that's the case. Adrenaline is the body's natural response to a situation like this in Acts chapter 4. You know, when you're confronted or especially with the threat of physical harm, your body goes into what psychologists call fight or flight, the fight or, fight, uh, fight or flight response. You know, it's when your heart starts racing and your pupils dilate and your awareness of what's happening around you intensifies. You know, and when you're threatened, you know, you either fight, you know, or or you go on flight. You flee. You run. I mean, let me give you an example of this. So I run in the mornings, and uh, back a few weeks ago, maybe about a month or so ago, I I was out running, and I I was in the last mile of my run getting ready to come back into our subdivision, and it was dark out, and and usually I'm, I'm about half asleep when I'm out running, but trying to be aware to not get hit by a car or anything like that. And, and so I'm coming down this road, getting ready to turn into our subdivision, and I'm thinking about the day, and I'm thinking about breakfast, because uh, that sounds good, or a cup of water or something. And as I start to run past uh, this house, all of a sudden I notice barking. And, and what do I see off to my right? There's a dog running down the driveway at me, but it's not just any old ordinary dog. It's a pit bull. And there's a pit bull that is loose, that is not chained up, running directly to me. So we talk about fight or flight. I chose the flight response. And uh, if you were there and could see my physical uh, reaction, I'm sure it was quite humorous because in midair, I was able to do a 180-degree turn and with my feet still moving in the air, heading the other direction. Well, fortunately, 
for the dog. He only took a few steps out of his yard, you know, and I was able to, to get a couple of houses down and kind of get my bearings and, you know, make sure I was okay and take care of myself. Uh, but here was the problem that I had. That was really the only entrance into my subdivision. My only other choice was to go all the way around this huge block past Noblesville High School to the other side, which is about another couple of miles. And again, I'm hungry, all right, and I'm done. I don't need to put in an extra two miles. And so I wait a little while, and I watch the dog gradually work its way to the backyard again, wondering why it's not chained up or, or in a fenced-in yard or something. And so I find two big rocks. And I think, you know, if I go down... Down, I'm going down hard, you know, and if I get injured, this dog's getting injured too. And so I cross over to the other side of the street and gradually tiptoe past this house. And fortunately for the dog, he didn't come out, you know, and I was able to make, you know, my way home. And so there was courage in my flight, you know. I mean, it, it may have not been the most obvious. I mean, you'd run from a pit bull too. But, uh, you know, we choose the, the fight or the flight response. Well, well, Peter and John were more the fight guys. And they showed no fear in realizing that they were being watched by these evil men. Verse 3 says that the religious leaders seized them. They came up to them. They seized them, which I'm sure was somewhat violent. I don't think it was probably very nice. And they had all kinds of problems with this message that Peter and John <clears throat> excuse me, were proclaiming. And when I think about this, I think that you and I know from experience, and at least I think, that those of us who have been Christians for a while, that it takes a lot of courage to tell others about Jesus, doesn't it? I mean, it takes some great courage. I mean, does anyone struggle with this? I hope no one else, you know, I hope I'm not the only one in this that struggles with telling others about Jesus. You know, maybe you struggle with this because you don't feel qualified. Well, let's remember Peter and John weren't qualified to be teaching at the temple. They didn't have the right training. I mean, these are nothing but ordinary men, but they chose to stand up and speak anyways. And when you think about it, I mean, isn't there something about ordinary people who share or give testimony that's a little bit more convincing anyways? I mean, remember Joe the plumber, you know, last fall in the political campaign and and the McCain campaign found this guy who they called Joe the Plumber and were able to elevate him and kind of get a little bump for a while from his testimony. I mean, just an ordinary man's perspective, you know, that the McCain campaign, you know, kind of latched onto. And I mean, it's true. I mean, when an ordinary person shows courage and speaks up, it's almost as if they're a little more believable anyways, you know, a little bit more believable than someone who's not your ordinary everyday guy. Uh, take this guy, for example. That's a scripture. I think I've got a... Eh, there you go. Jared. Everybody knows Jared, right? All right, he's our, he's our subway guy. You know, Jared is a classic example uh, of an ordinary guy. I mean, we all know Jared. We all love Jared. I know Steve Wallen is especially fond of Jared and what subway does. I'm just kidding. Steve Wallen's not a big subway guy. Uh, but uh, he's a Subway guy, and when Subway, uh, a few years back, decided that they wanted to sell more sandwiches, they didn't go out and hire someone famous, they found Jared. And again, Jared's a pretty ordinary guy. Nothing fascinating about Jared. He really likes Subway. He lost a lot of weight doing it. Uh, but he's been in their commercials for years now. And, and again, you know, he, he lost a lot of weight. But Jared is a classic example of the fact that ordinary people with a little courage can do some pretty extraordinary things. 
I mean, we've all been influenced by ordinary people. I mean, you know, is that true for you? I mean, maybe, you know, maybe it was a Sunday school teacher, you know, when you were in school. Nothing fascinating about her, nothing fascinating about him. But they had a great influence, a great impact on your life. Maybe, you know, it was a, a, just a regular school teacher. Maybe it was a soccer coach or a basketball coach. Maybe a neighbor who lived near you or the, the couple that lived in the apartment next to you that invited you to come to this church, you know, with them. Or a coworker who sat down with you one day and they could just tell you were having a really bad day. And over the course of time, that conversation of how you're doing just ended up in that person telling you a little bit more about their faith and how their faith in God helped you to get through some situations. I mean, we all know what it's like to be influenced by ordinary people. Well, Peter and John, again, just ordinary guys, but they had enough courage to share their life, their story, and the truth about Jesus with others. I, I like this verse, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8 says, so never be ashamed to tell others about our Lord. So never be ashamed to tell others about our Lord. I mean, Paul's writing this letter from, uh, from, from prison, and, and I think it's almost, I think most of us would say that, you know, we're not ashamed. All right, we're not ashamed of Jesus, but we just don't feel very courageous about sharing Jesus with others. And again, there's nothing special about Peter and John, no fancy education, but they weren't ashamed to tell others about Jesus. You know, St. Francis of Assisi is quoted, and, and we quote him, and you've probably heard us say it from stage before, or you've read it, or you've heard somebody say, preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. And that's a great statement. Preach the gospel and, if necessary, use words. And, and I realize that these are great words and that uh, many who claim to be followers of Jesus would do very well to listen and to apply these words to their life. Because in the past, we as a church, you know, have been guilty about preaching a message or speaking a message, but not living it with our lives. And that's why people call us hypocrites. But I almost feel like the pendulum is swinging a little bit, especially in the church world today. And while some of it's good, I think some of it's not quite as healthy. I mean, our motivation now is to do as much as we can for others, you know, especially those in need. And while that's a great thing, and while that's especially needed, and while I believe the church is called to do that, I, I think the problem becomes in that it's almost becoming law that while you do it, don't say anything about your faith, because that would be an invasion of someone else's privacy. So don't you dare go down that road. And the Bible says faith comes from hearing. And I believe that we need to learn to show the love of Jesus to others through our acts of service. But even in that, we need to find ways of speaking the love of Jesus into others' lives too. I mean, we're commanded to share our faith with others. And that takes courage. And so Peter and John, they share this truth, and when they do, you know, they're certainly met by a number of different reactions, you know, even in this crowd. And, and while, 5, 000, while the church grew to 5,000, there had to be a number that walked away too. And, and some were hostile towards the message, some were apathetic, but lives are changed. And the religious leaders, they take Peter and John, they seize them, and they throw them into prison. Let's pick it up in verse 5. It says, the next day the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the other men of the high priest's family. And they had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, and John, then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, 
If we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how, we has, how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men which we must have to be saved. I mean, that's courage. You know, Peter and John are standing before the highest court in the land. I mean, it's the equivalent of our Supreme Court. And these leaders have gathered to decide what to do with Peter and John. And so the first thing they do is question them. And, and truth be known, you know, there are certain places that you and I go where we exist, where we live, where it's easy to be or easier to be courageous about our faith. I mean, it's easier to be courageous about our faith right here in this room. You know, that you come in this room and you feel comfortable and supported by the people around you. And so you can worship as you want. You can pray as you want. You know, you can even raise your hands, you know, while we're doing worship. You, you feel comfortable. It's easy to be courageous here. Maybe, maybe it's easy to be courageous with a friend at, at a table in the cafe and, and you're just kind of talking about life and it's easy for you to talk about your faith and, and to be courageous. Maybe it's your living room or around a, a close group of friends, you know, or a student ministry conference that you go to and you just, you feel the power and the excitement of what's happening around you and you, your friends are there, but it's not as easy, you know, when you walk down the high school hallway. I mean, there are certain places where sharing your faith isn't so difficult, but it's when we get out of our comfort zones, this, this becomes even more difficult. You know, like classic example, you know, if your family's like our family at all, you know, it's Thanksgiving dinner, you know, that all of you, your extended family, you sit down at the dinner table and everyone starts looking your way because they know that you're the family that goes to church, you know, you're the holy ones, you're the spiritual ones. You know, maybe you'll say the prayer and there's just that awkward and uncomfortable moment of do I offer or do I wait until I'm asked? I don't want to offend anyone. You know, is somebody going to pray? Do you want me to pray? You know, you're, again, you're afraid of, of saying something, afraid of offending someone. I, I, you know, I, I've gone through this. You know, what, what do others think? Or, or maybe it's when you're at work and, and you've had your lunch break and it's your personal time. You can do with it as you want and, and you know you want to take out your Bible and maybe you're working on your Bible study or something, but what will others think? You know, if they see what you're doing, if they hear you say something, or, or you're sitting in class, you know, and your prof decides to take a couple of pot shots, you know, at Christians and the church. And I mean, your, your arm gets so heavy and, and you want to raise it up because you want to say something. You'd like to make a little bit of a correction to the statements that are being made, but it's hard to do it. And, you know, so do you speak up or keep silent? Or you're at a party with friends and, and things start to get out of hand and you know that you really shouldn't be in that environment anymore, but you don't want to look like the goody-goody and and think that you're better than everyone. I mean, it takes courage to live out and to speak out your faith. There's another thing that we see in Peter and John, that Peter and John, these two ordinary guys, that they show great courage, but not just to speak about Jesus, but they also show courage to confront. You know, they not only share their faith, but notice that Peter confronts the leaders. I mean, it's one thing to tell people about Jesus, but it's another thing to confront them with the truth of what needs to change in their lives. You know, and there are a lot of people that are good and have no problem when, with proclaiming Jesus, but when it comes to the issues of morality, it's easy to back off. You know, it's easy to back off a bit when it becomes too personal or too comfortable. And when Peter speaks about Jesus to this crowd, he adds the phrase, whom you guys crucified. 
I mean, did you notice that? He said, whom you crucified. I mean, he's kind of kicking it up a notch. I mean, that's courage. That'll get your head cut off in Jerusalem. I mean, it takes a lot of courage to move the conversation from general talk about Jesus to let's talk about you for a second. And I think that's an area where I fail in my personal life, you know, my everyday life, even out of church, that sometimes it's easy for me to talk generally about Jesus with friends or acquaintances or people that I'm just in interaction with, but it's difficult to turn the table or to take that conversation up a notch and make it a little bit more personal. Let me give you an example. Uh, Jenny and the kids and I went on vacation earlier this summer with uh, a good part of her family, and uh, we were down at the beach for a week, and and my wife prays prays pretty uh, diligently uh, for some of the people in her family that we're just not really sure where they are with Christ you know, right now and what type of priority he has in their lives. And, and so Jenny was praying that, that God might open up some doors uh, for us to have some conversations with them, even on vacation. And great family and great people. And, and I, I, I'm sure that some of you can relate with where we are in this. And, and so we had a great week and it was almost comical how the one day that it rained, it always rains when you go to the beach, but uh, that all the family were, we were trapped inside all day, that, uh, that one of Jenny's family members uh, just started talking about church. And uh, you can almost feel this giggle inside a little bit of, okay, God, I get it. You know, we pray about certain things. You'll actually open up these doors of opportunity. And, and uh, he's a great guy. He's a little cynical and, and all of that. But he started talking about this coworker who is always inviting him to church and telling him about Jesus. And, and I expected him to go to the a- exact opposite direction with it and just really kind of lay into the guy. But, but he was totally different on that. I mean, he really respects this guy, and he's actually gone to church with him once. And and I felt a little convicted of, wow, I've never had that conversation, even with my own family member, but he's got a coworker that's doing it. And and so we talked, and we talked, and 15 minutes turned into half an hour and 45 minutes an hour. And and I left thinking, wow, that was a pretty cool conversation. I was able to share some things from my heart. But as I was thinking about this message this past week and what it means to move from talking generally about Jesus to making it a little bit more personal, people, I realize that I miss that opportunity all the time. You know, that it, it always seems like I fall one question short in my conversation with others. And, and I almost felt a little convicted that even, you know, in that, that hotel room that I had an opportunity to ask a question, you know, to make it a little bit more personal. And maybe that time's still to come, but I, but I just couldn't help but wonder how many times do I pull up in the conversation one question too short, or I fail to say one more thing. And Peter didn't do that. He boldly proclaimed the truth. He says, there's no other name under heaven by which man can be saved except for Jesus, and you crucified him. And it takes a lot of courage to stand in front of someone and say, you know, there is only one way to heaven, and it is through Jesus. And so these leaders see that Peter and John are not ordinary men, And they decide the best thing to do is to try and shut them up. Verse 15, it says, So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everybody living in Jerusalem knows they have done an outstanding miracle and we can't deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn these men to speak no longer to anyone in his name. Verse 18, Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. 
But Peter and John replied, judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. And then verse 20, and don't miss this, for we cannot help but speaking about what we have seen and heard. Isn't that a powerful statement? I mean, do you see the passion in that statement? For we cannot help speaking about what we've seen and heard. I mean, do you have that same passion for Jesus Christ in your life right now that you just can't help but talk about what he's done inside of you? You know, I, I see this in people who, who make decisions for Jesus Christ in their life, you know, at a little bit older age. You know, for me, I, I was a, a young teen when I gave my life to Jesus. And, and so if you're like me at all, sometimes it's easy to lose the passion a little bit. But new people, they get real passionate about it. They're not afraid to step on anyone's toes. They're not un- afraid to make the conversation uncomfortable. They go right at it. And if you're in that position, don't let up, you know. Let that fire continue burning inside of you so that you might rub off on some of us, you know, rub off on me too so that we can see that same excitement. And Peter and John, you know, they stand before these men who whipped Jesus and nailed him to a cross, and they command them, the religious leaders, to be quiet, and their reply, we can't. We can't be quiet. We can't go quiet on this. And their courage came from God. And so the the leaders are a little perplexed by all this, and they don't know what to do. They don't know how to keep them quiet. Verse 21. So it says, after further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. Verse 22. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. Now here's what I want you to notice as we draw to an end here. One more thing about the lives of Peter and John, and we see it here in verse 22. That in this situation, it was their act of compassion that gave credibility to their courageous words. It was their act of compassion that gave credibility to their courageous words. Because of what they had done for the crippled man in Acts chapter 3, they were able to speak boldly in Acts 4. And what I think you and I can take from this is that until you reach out in your life, it'll be difficult for you to speak out. And until people know your love and your genuine concern for them and for their lives, you might have a difficult time proclaiming the truth. Let me give you an example of this as we close. I don't know if you realize it or not, but it's been four years now since Hurricane Katrina uh, hit the, the Gulf Coast region. And, and I know that you can probably remember how awful it was to, to watch the news and to see the pictures of, of just people's lives devastated and, and the pictures and the stories. I mean, a horrific scene. And, and, and I, I was able, and I know some of you went down on a trip. I think Genesis Church even took a trip during that time. I was able to go down about a month after the storm with a small group of people uh, from the church where I was serving to, to kind of do some, some sightseeing uh, so that we might consider how Uh, we as a church could get involved with some of the relief efforts. And so we flew down about a month after the storm uh, to investigate. And I thought I'd just show you a couple of pictures that I was able to take. This is in an area called Pass Christian, Mississippi. Now, while Pass Christian dealt, was right near the eye of the storm, uh, or some of the, the, I'm sorry, not the eye necessarily, but the strongest winds of the storm, uh, there was some flooding. But the greatest damage experienced in Pass Christian was um, the wind damage. But in this area, this is a couple of miles from the coast. You can see that this house is in the wrong yard. 
I mean, it had literally been picked up from a neighbor's yard down the street uh, and moved down to the corner of this cul-de-sac. Next picture. Again, just some of the effects. Next photo. Uh, again, a house. That's not their yard. Uh, it's in the wrong, wrong area. Uh, next picture. There's a, a forklift that, for whatever reason, however it got there, got trapped underneath this house. And uh, This is the coast. Uh, this is at the beach where some of the relief efforts, again, this is just one month after the storm, were taking place. And, and there were a number of people in past Christian that had nowhere to go, and so they were living in tents and in campers, but they had no means for electricity or showers or food. And this is one of the uh, major relief areas that was taking place right in past Christian. Next slide. Uh, you can see the refrigerators there, the freezers for keeping things like ice. Next slide. Uh, this is a cooking area where they were preparing three meals a day. Next slide. Uh, again, they set up this remote grocery store where people could come in and for very little money or if any money at all, they were able to get a voucher and to buy so much food every day. Next slide. Uh, this, is, this is what I want to get to. I want you to see the guy. Uh, he's the obvious one. Uh, with the brown polo shirt on. He's got his arms crossed. His name's Greg, and, and he's the guy that I want to tell you about. Greg's an ordinary guy. Uh, I got to know him a little bit on this day. Uh, Greg is from Evansville, Indiana, uh, a restaurant owner, and when Hurricane Katrina hit and the news reports started coming out, his life was just, was just rattled by what had happened. And Greg uh, went to his wife a day or two after the storm, and he says, I don't know what I'm supposed to do, but I think I'm supposed to go. And she said, I know you're supposed to go. God put it on my heart, just go. And so Greg took a box truck that he had, and he was able to take this stove that he had that he could hook up to propane, and he put it in the back of the box truck, and he threw one of his freezers in the back of this box truck. And just a couple of days after the storm, he just started driving from Evansville, Indiana, to the coast. And he got to this place called Pass Christian, and not all of the water had receded yet. So he drove his truck, having no idea where he was going to go, and he just drove as close to the coast as he could get until he could finally see the water. And he just pulled off to the side. He loaded up his box truck with as much food as he could. And he pulled out his stove and he hooked up the propane and he just started cooking. And I think if I remember his story correctly, and I don't remember all the details, that first night he cooked for like five people. And a couple of days later, some of the maintenance workers started hearing about what happening and they started showing up. And little by little, all of this turned into that uh, tent city of sorts that you saw. Or just even one month after Greg's courageous act of driving uh, to this area on the coast, they were serving 1,000 people a day, three meals a day. And the generosity from churches and from restaurants and from other givers just kept coming and this team of volunteers. And, and Greg was standing here telling us his story. And he had just started, but by the time he was done, there were just tears streaming down his face. And, and I think one of the things that moved me the most about this ordinary guy who was passionate about following Jesus in his life was just hearing all of the details of how it all came to be. Uh, just even in knowing that he had a disabled, uh, physically handicapped son uh, who was at home. You know, he loved deeply, and he just talked about him. And, and to think that even through that son, God was shaping his heart for so many years to get ready for this moment. And, and, uh, and Greg, you know, he spent a lot of time there, you know, helping people and reaching out to people. And I guess the point is, he's just an ordinary guy. 
I mean, moved to compassion and his act of love, his, his time of service, his sacrifice, you know, gave he and others the opportunity to share the message of Jesus with others because the volunteers would sit down with people at the tables and just share Christ's love, you know, as they shared a meal. And, and what's the secret to his courage? What's the secret to this guy's strength? It's nothing other than Jesus. It's the power of Jesus working in him. I mean, he's no different than you and me, but he chose to believe that God can do great things through him. And so what does all of this mean to you and me as we wrap up this morning? I mean, we might think, you know, that we're ordinary, that we really don't have anything fascinating to contribute to anyone. But we couldn't be more wrong. Because God is waiting to do great things, you know, through you. I mean, he's looking for for men and women like you and me who are willing, like Peter and John, like Greg from Evansville, to live courageously for Jesus Christ. And what's the key to that courage? I think it's fairly obvious, but let's go back to verse 13 again. It says, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and took note that these men had been with Jesus. I mean, wouldn't that be cool? I mean, people can say a lot of things about you and me, and they can agree and disagree with what we say and what we stand for. But wouldn't it be awesome to hear things like, I don't agree with what you say, but it's obvious that you love Jesus and that he's changed your life. And what a great time for us as a church as we get ready to spend the next month talking about the what-ifs of our church. I mean, it'll take every one of us It'll take every one of us living with the love of Christ in our hearts courageously, willing to show the truth with our actions and to speak the truth with our mouths. I mean, it's why we exist. It's why we exist as a church. And maybe you're here this morning and you think you're kind of here by accident or you got roped into this for whatever way. You know, I don't want you to miss the opportunity of knowing that the reason why we exist as a church is to share Christ's love with you and to tell you that Jesus Christ died for you. You know, that he's given his life for you, that he has given us hope, and he gives you the opportunity to receive that for yourselves. And we'd love to talk with you about what a decision like that means today. After the service, we'll have a team of people, ordinary people, down here in front that would love to talk with you about your life or, you know, maybe some of the things that you're facing right now, or maybe you'd just like to come up and say, hey, can you pray with me today? I'm going through this right now. We'll be here to meet you afterwards. Let's pray. God, I just want to thank you for uh, this reminder this morning that as ordinary and as boring and unfascinating as we feel like, you know, we may be and what we have to contribute to the work that you're doing here in this community and around the world. God, I pray that you'd remind us with absolute confidence and conviction this morning that we are Christ's workmanship created in Christ to do good works. Every single one of us, that our lives are not an accident. And we know that we're not ordinary because of Jesus and because of what he's done for us. God, would you teach us to live as you live? Would you give us the confidence to live as you live? Would you remind us that we're loved by you? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.